Listener Production. I'm probably an introverted extrovert, which would probably surprise most people would think I'm just an extrovert, but I'm not. I get shy very quickly. I get embarrassed very quickly. Whether I say something I think is really unfair, on Dancing with the Stars, for instance, I do take myself to task for the numbers of days afterwards, often, and I think that might surprise people. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we're curious to get to know and understand. There might be tears as well as laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. Showman Todd McKenney has been sparkling on stage since he was a little boy. He's someone who lights up every room he's in and you can't look away. Todd has built such a diverse creative career, dancing, singing, acting, as well as starring in musical theatre and television. I'm lucky enough to call Todd a dear friend, even if when we first met, he told me I danced like an ironing board. I caught Todd in between rehearsals for Hairspray the Musical and I recorded our chat from the dance studio. I am beside myself. I mean, it's taken quite some time to actually sit down and chat with you. I had to bring my best razzle-dazzle. I'm wearing my sparkly coat for you. (laughs) I knew I was talking to you. I've got to have some (laughs) razzle-dazzle. Well, of course. I wouldn't expect anything less. (laughs) (laughs) Because you are someone, I think, no matter what you do, you bring the razzle-dazzle. You are such a showman. Well, yes, I have kind of been pretty comfortable with, you know, being painted with that brush and I think it started at a very early age and, you know, through mum's dancing school, I was covered in sequins from as early as I can remember and I've kind of hung on to it. And then, of course, doing The Boy From Oz in 1998, that kind of (laughs) solidified my love of the razzle-dazzle. Well, the razzle-dazzle and just your star power, what I do want to start talking about is you as a little boy. You were three when you first started to dance. Yes, I was. Mum had a dancing school in Perth in a suburb called Morley. She had the Morley Dance Studio. And so I would literally, you know, instead of getting a babysitter really, mum would just let me jig up the back of the classes and I never stopped jigging. And, <laughs> it, you know, it was something I was just, you know, always, I was just always meant to do it, I think. Like I never thought that I would do anything else and even though I'd done other things before I went into professional showbiz but it was just very natural to me and I was uh, the one of only maybe three boys in her whole dancing school of you know 300 students but it never worried me that you know I was outnumbered severely outnumbered (laughs) I just always felt natural so I always feel quite blessed actually that my childhood hobby became my career so seamlessly because I know I see a lot of friends, you know, finish high school and don't have any idea what they want to do. And so I I never had that 
transition period. I never had that decision to make. As a three-year-old, take me back to that. How did you know that you could dance? A lot of people think they can, but they really can't. I think I've had a pretty healthy ego from the age of three. (laughs) It's funny. It's now the total opposite. I now feel like I don't compete with anybody. But back then, I always wanted to be the best in the class. So if somebody wanted to do a double turn, I always wanted to do a triple turn. Or if somebody wanted to do one backflip, I wanted to do a back somersault. And that drive has always been in me. And even at school, I wanted to win the running races, kick the football the furthest, you know, score the most goals. I've just had that drive throughout my life. As I get older and more settled in myself, I now no longer need to be, you know, the winner of everything. But I think all through my childhood from a very early age, I just inherently had that trait. Obviously Mm. your mum, though, must have played a big part in that. I don't know your mum very well, but I've chatted to her over the phone and things. And I know she's your biggest supporter. I've also seen you interviewed where you've described her as such a strong woman and that she's a stickler for technique. She is. She is. I learned from one of the best dancing teachers in the world. But funnily enough, you know, because I don't know whether it was because I had natural ability or whether it was because I was the dancing teacher's child, but my lessons were always left till 10 o'clock at night. It was my costumes that were always getting sewn in the car on the way to the Estedfords where everybody else has had to be in place a month before, but I was always left to the end. And I think it probably is because mum knew I could, you know, hack it and, you know, oh, quick, I better give Todd his lesson. So at 10 o'clock at night I'm, you know, putting on the tap shoes and having my lesson when everyone else is long gone. And then mum also wasn't a... um, very, um, she didn't heap praise on me. She wasn't a, a pushy stage mother. It was almost the opposite. As I look back in life, I think that's because she knew I, I was handling it. But because I was in the class and because there was a couple of other boys in the class too, mum always had the wisdom to make boys dance like boys and not just try and make them one of the girls in the class. So mum always knew how to do that and that's what stood me in great stead when I entered the professional realm and where I had to partner females and look like the leading man with female cast members no matter what your sexuality is. Um, I think for the storytelling, when you're playing a character, you have to play those characters truthfully. And so I always looked like the man when I was dancing with girls. And I think that was a really uh, wise um, sort of decision on mum to focus on the boys dancing like boys. So we never just did the same steps as the girls. We always did a boys version of it. And she became synonymous with that in Perth. And so boys from all other schools, you know, slowly just filtered into mum's dance school and she ended up with a lot of boys who have gone on to dance all over the world. So she was a really hard taskmaster. She was the boss and she made sure you, you know, pointed your toes and stretched your arms and you stood in line as you were supposed to stand in line. All stuff that I then, you know, went on to use. And was there sort of a difference between your mum teaching you and your mum at home? Because I think about, say, with my daughters, I would find it very hard to teach them anything really because they (laughs) wouldn't take me seriously and they'd laugh at me. How was she able to sort of delineate those roles or didn't she? Well, she did sometimes. I think I must have gone through a a terrible time when I was probably about six, six to probably nine Mum sent me off to another dancing teacher for exactly that reason. 
I stopped listening to her and just went, oh, that's just my mum. And so I went to another dancing teacher's school, a couple of other dancing teacher's schools, so I would listen to them and learn. But then from about the age of nine, I came back to mum's and then I was ready to listen to what mummy had to say. (laughs) (laughs) But even thinking of little Todd as a nine-year-old, though, being a showman, (laughs) being professional, Tell me about that. I've been lucky enough to have you teach me to dance Mm. and I'm not a great dancer. You're not going to bring that up, are you? Oh, of course. Don't (laughs) you worry. How could I not bring it up? But what I want to talk to you about is nerves. When I have attempted to dance, I have wanted to vomit beforehand and literally run away and think, why on earth did I agree to this? Did you ever feel like that or for you was it, oh, this wonderful self-expression? Uh, it, it was the self-expression, yes. I've never shied away from a big crowd. I think a lot of people have the same fear of, you know, public speaking or any time that you have to get up in public, but I've never had that. Mine's been sort of the opposite. That's sometimes where I feel most at home, and I, I always have. There's something about a crowd clapping and cheering and, I don't know, that, that has driven me from a really early age. One of my earliest memories is of a, um, a dancing school concert that I would have been five probably. There were, it was me. I was the only boy in this class. She had 30 girls and in this dancing school concert, mum kept talking about the concert and the audience would be sitting out there, but I didn't really grasp what that actually meant. It was, oh, the people will be sitting out there. But when you actually get into the performance and the people are sitting there, that I got really, really nervous. And I was wearing lime green knickerbockers (laughs) with a white (laughs) button-up shirt underneath. And I had to stand in the middle of the stage up the back and then two little girls in lemon and white puffy dresses with bonnets would walk on, leak up on each side of my arms and I would walk them down to the front of the stage. I would unhitch them, if you like, and they would walk to the ends and I'd go back up the middle and the next two little girls would come on. So that happened 15 times, right? And at about, I suppose about six or seven of those pairings into the routine, I focused on the crowd and I got nervous and just I wet my pants. I wet my pants and I remember it. So my lime green knickerbockers slowly turned dark green with every new set of girls and I remember the audience just laughing and laughing and laughing. And even to this day, some of the people that were in that audience that day, they'll bring it up. They'll say, what about remember that day you wet your pants? And I did and that was nerves. That was because of the shock of suddenly looking at all those people. But, you know, it kind of, it brought the house down. So I try and do it in every show (laughs) I do now. I might even do it in hairspray. Oh, and I cannot wait to see you in hairspray. (laughs) When you tell me that story, my stomach just does somersaults on your behalf. Obviously, it did. It was nerves. But the only other time I get nervous nowadays, and it's very rare that I do get what you're describing, is when I'm under-rehearsed because I'm a rehearser. I love rehearsing. I'm talking to you today from the rehearsal studios, but I love rehearsing. I love going into the room every day and and fine-tuning stuff and discovering stuff. The only time I get nervous now, and I hate it, I absolutely hate it, so I do know what you're talking about, is when I'm under-rehearsed. Yes. Tell me, though, more about that feeling of when you're on stage now, it's Mm. like being home. 
What is that it like? Is. Well, what I love about it is uh, particularly in my one-man show. So I have a band that I've been working with for the last decade and in between theatre shows or TV things, I take my show on the road and we do regional tours, small theatre tours in capital cities. And I, I just love that so much because there's a way of, and I use the term lovingly, manipulating an audience which really intrigues me and really makes me thrilled and focused. So it's being able to have a, an audience, make an audience feel what you're feeling, make them laugh and then the next minute make them cry. Playing with an audience is one of the biggest thrills I ever get. And all shows are different, um, not so much in, you know, scripted musicals, but in my one-man shows, every show is different. And we change the songs as we're going along, for instance, to suit the mood of the audience, whether they might be a more subdued, perhaps more conservative, older crowd, or whether they might be a younger, sort of gung-ho, high-vibed crowd. We change the show as we go. And I also change my chat as we go to suit the mood of the audience. And, and look, it's even the psychology of a performer and an audience really, really interests me. And that's on television, radio or stage. But on stage, it's a great lesson in it's almost group body language. If you get an audience, for instance, who is it's a Tuesday night, it's raining, it's cold, it's freezing, they've booked their tickets, they've come to see Hairspray and they're very, very quiet. As a cast, your instinct is to go hard and really try and drive them, try and get them to be louder and more vocal. And what that tends to do to an audience is make them sit further back and further back and further back. So what I've learned over the years, which I find fascinating with, with a huge, with that number of people, with 2,000 people, is that if you go into their world, so if they're quiet, I tend to now slow everything down and plant the dialogue so they hear everything and you just, you, may, you go into their world and then they tend to then come with you and by the end they're, you know, jumping on their seats. It's really fascinating. Oh, it is. And listening to you describe that, it's really about being present in that very moment, isn't it? It is. It's about being present and it's also about being authentic, particularly I think in the one-man style shows or solo performer I think when people buy a ticket to come and see, you know, Todd McKenney in, you know, singing Peter Allen or whatever the show might be at, say, let's say Crown in Melbourne, that's a 900-seat venue. They've paid their money to come and see me. And I think, they, I think I owe it to them to give them the real guy because otherwise they could just watch me on YouTube or buy a CD or Spotify or whatever. But I think when they've bought their tickets, they've got in the car, they've got dressed, they've had dinner beforehand, grabbed their friends. I think they deserve to walk away from that experience having learned who Todd is not having the constraints of a character in a musical, but they should get an idea of what I am. So I think being authentic on stage or television or radio particularly, I think is the key to a great relationship with your audience. And that's hard to do sometimes, but I love that. See, I love flying by the seat of my pants. I love doing this with you because I don't know what's coming up. But it's only sort of experience I've learned to be really comfortable on stage. And, again, I come back to the playing with the audience and you're giving them, you know, the real deal. You say that you want the audience to see you, to see the real you, to see who Todd is. Who is that? How would you describe yourself? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think in all my years no one's ever asked that. <laughs> well, I think many things. I think 
there's different Todds. I mean, I couldn't be the Todd that the public are most familiar with, which is the Dancing with the Stars guy. I couldn't live him 24-7 because I, <laughs> I'd be lynched and it would be exhausting. And um, so the, he's a character. I call him a character. My on-stage guy is closer to me, but, of course, I, in my everyday life, I don't put on sequence and, you know, run around singing I Go to Rio. So he's a character as well, but in my one-man shows, half of the chat is is very real to me. I don't know. I'm probably an introverted extrovert, which would probably surprise most people would think I'm just an extrovert, but I'm not. I get shy very quickly. I get embarrassed very quickly. When something goes wrong, whether I say something I think is really unfair, on Dancing with the Stars, for instance, I do take myself to task for days or the numbers of days afterwards often and I think that might surprise people. <laughs> I think it would surprise people and I think also what would surprise people is you saying that you're an introverted extrovert. I get that because I think I'm that as well. I'm mm. out there but I get my energy when I go home. I need downtime to then be that yeah. person. Yeah, I just said to somebody leaving, because I'm currently doing Cinderella at the Regent Theatre before Hairspray starts, and I, just, I said that to one of the cast members I left with last night. I said, isn't this great? I love coming to work and I really love going home. <laughs> 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 oh, I hear you. I hear you. Seriously. So with that in mind, when are you happiest? What is happiest, Todd? Oh, when I'm happiest is, well, in a theatre it makes me very, very, very happy because I know it, it feels like a big warm cuddle to me. But when I'm really, really happy is sitting on the deck of my shack on the Hawkesbury River with my two dogs fishing or kayaking or not that I kayak on the deck. That's obviously in the river. <laughs> but you could. I mean, you could literally I could. dance or walk on water, Todd, so I reckon you could do it. <laughs> i give it a go. Um, I'm really good on my own with my dogs isolated. I've got this very isolated property on the Hawkesbury and that's my happy place. That's my go-to place where I just want to turn off and I can spend a week there on my own without the television on, just with either music or reading or fishing or kayaking or just sitting and staring out at a beautiful river. And that I'm happy with. And I'm also, you know, happy with 2,000 people sitting in front of me in a musical. So I'm kind of, I can do both. And it means you can do both, I think, by having mm. that sort of sustenance away from everyone and then da-da. Yeah. Let's talk now about Dancing with the Stars, Todd. That's when I first met you and... You're going to bring up the ironing board, aren't you? Of course. How could I ever (laughs) possibly let you live this down? Dear listeners, if you didn't see my turn, it was very short on Dancing with the Stars, Todd told me in his beautiful way that I danced like an ironing board. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I was so mortified. In my own defence, Your Honour, that was before I knew you and if I'd known I was going to get to know you and love you as much as I do, I would never would have said it to you. <laughs> oh, you darling. If I, I knew I was going to have to face you mm. in, in my afterlife, <laughs> I wouldn't have said it. No, but see, that's what I mean. That was me. 
I don't know why I did that. That was me. But that was your role. And I I do remember really clearly when you came to sort of, in inverted commas, meet us all, meet the cast, that you basically introduced yourself and you said, please know that I'm now not going to come and talk to you individually because I can't afford to get to know you. Otherwise, I won't be able to do what I do on the show. That's absolutely true. And the hardest part for me or the hardest people for me to judge on that show were always people who I knew because I had to be myself. I had to say what I thought. Um, I knew where I fitted into the scheme of the show to the nuts and bolts that make up that show. I knew what my my role, if you were, was. You know, for instance, I worked with Tina Arena for a long, long time, dancing with her and choreographing her, and we travelled around the world together. I having to judge her was really one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because uh, this may sound stupid too, but I, <laughs> in my everyday life, I'm not judgmental. I'm not a judgmental person. What? I. Seriously, (laughs) Jess, and I'm not just saying it. I'm not. I really love other people having success and other people trying hard and I love seeing a show that might be a little dusty around the edges that people are giving it their go. And I don't go to the theatre, for instance, and pick it apart. I very rarely, you know, will come home and bitch about a show I've just seen that's not that great. I'll kind of find the the good in it. But, you know, on Dancing with the Stars and the people listening to that, they would never think that that's a reality but that it really is a reality. So... Being paid to be judgmental at first was really tricky for me. (laughs) Yes, but you've revelled in that role and then, as you Mm. have said, though, you've had many different roles and then I was lucky enough to do The Real Dirty Dancing with you, which some people may have seen. And, oh, my goodness, for me that was excruciating, the whole experience of having to sort of shed your skin that was hard. and do all so of what, that. So what we did is we took a number of celebrities like yourself up to the Roanoke Mountains in West Virginia where they shot Dirty Dancing, the movie, and I, it was my job to teach you all some of the dance routines from the movie and then there was going to be an ultimate winner to play Baby and Johnny. Exactly. That's the premise. And it was the competition. I hate competition anyway. <laughs> but you signed up for it. Why I did you sign know. Up for well, it? you know what? I signed up for it. I suppose perhaps with what you do too in your life, I would much rather say yes to things, to grab mm-hmm. opportunities with both hands, give it a crack, even if it yeah. is excruciating and it doesn't work out the way you hope or dream, because I love to learn from people, from experiences. And I did have such a wonderful time doing that broadly and getting to know you more. And I also remember really clearly having a beautiful conversation with you along the lines of I was really freaking out during a particular time and I was really worried about performing and I felt embarrassed and worried about what people would think because I was going to be dancing in my underwear But you were so kind to me because I remember you sort of took me aside and you said to me, don't overthink this, just go through the motions. Because I was just thinking, oh, no, what is me, you know, a 50-plus woman doing on the other side of the world in her underwear? Jess's mental hurdle is that she needs to get out of, I'm the mum, I shouldn't be here doing this, I shouldn't be wearing skimpy clothes. She really needs to let that go and embrace the sexiness that, that she has, which is a bombshell. I think for me, 
why I'm finding it hard is that I'm realising that there's almost a part of me that's kind of shut down and being the mum as opposed to the woman. But you did really well. <laughs> Thank that. you. Well, so you, was, were, you did. Yes. You were the surprise package of I, that whole bit. <laughs> well, that was what I surprised myself. But what helped me was your words of wisdom. And I hope you know well, that. Think, Thank you. That means a lot to me. I think, look, the thing is, it, you know, I think soon as a lot of people, celebrities, when they're asked to get in that arena with me initially, just see the guy from Dancing with the Stars who's judgmental and picky. But in that environment for the real duty dancing, in that environment for the all new Monty strip shows that I had to put together for the ladies' night and the men's about men's and women's health, again, I'm not in the role that people expect me to be in, which is the critical role or the criticising guy. I was there to be your wingman and make you look as best as you possibly could. And so I think it just had a transition period for all of those shows and your show, this one you're talking about, The Dirty Dancing, where you all had to realise I was actually, I was on your side. And there's no point embarrassing people, you know, when they're standing there in their underwear in the West Virginia winter. I needed you to look good, and you did. <laughs> well, again, it was. Well, I got to know you too, oh. you know, and during that, and and all of the celebrities, but you particularly, because I think you know, I think you were the most vulnerable, and you were also somebody who shows your emotions quite easily. And I think we always knew when there was a little bit of trouble brewing for you, or a bit of trepidation, and I was very acutely aware of that, you know, and protecting you. I think that's how we became really good friends. Yeah, most definitely. And that did mean so much to me because, yeah, I do wear my heart on my sleeve, as you said. But for me, I couldn't live my life any other way. No. And I think for someone like me, I think I would rather someone who uh, feels confident enough, really, to wear their heart on their sleeve because you always know where you stand. And it's, I think it's much safer for people to be uh, the sort of person who's prepared to wear the heart on their sleeve because you're not kind of then locking yourself away and hiding in a cupboard and, you know, being one thing in, in public and having people not know how you feel and then hiding away and, you know, trying to face your demons all, you know, locked up. And I think I would rather work with people who wear the heart on their sleeves because you know where you stand and you know what's going on. And it's freeing. I know for me, I spent a lot of my early life thinking I had to be perfect, thinking I had to have it all together all the time and present this certain image to the wider world. But then when I had my experience with postnatal depression, although it was an awful time, it was also freeing for me because it took that pressure off my shoulders that actually I wasn't perfect. I wasn't a failure either, but I just needed some help. Yes, and I think for strong people like you and strong people like me, having to face those moments is actually really confronting and you feel like a failure or people are going to laugh at me or I'm not going to be taken seriously or I'm never going to work again because people are going to think I've lost my marble. You know, it's all of that stuff. And I think to finally just realise that it's actually okay to be vulnerable and have those moments. What I've found when I have those moments is, A, it shocks the shit out of everybody, but when I actually say, hey, I'm not doing very well, um, I just need to, I need to talk, what it does is it actually brings people closer to you, I think. Of course it does because it gives them permission also to say, oh, you know what, I've been thinking that or I've been feeling that. Yeah. 
tell me a little bit more about those moments that, that you're describing there of, of well, difficulty. Uh, do you know a really weird one, which just took me by absolute surprise, which I never, ever, ever speak about because I just look like an ungrateful git, is when the boy from Oz happened, I got plucked out of, you know, obscurity to a degree in, the, in my industry and in my friendship group and put on this pedestal, was in this hit show as this great loved Australian man, Peter Allen, and my career just took off. And doors were opened, you know, it was just full on. But what came with that, which was you'd never really think about, is a level of kind of trauma that you weren't bringing your friends along for the ride. And that really took me by surprise. And so whilst I should have been having the time of my life for a lot of it, and this would have been about four months after we opened, I just thought my friends, a lot of them still struggling. I was making great money. My face was everywhere. I was living my dream. And they weren't. They was going along, still having to do three, four jobs, teach dancing at multiple schools to pay the rent, all that stuff. And here I was on cloud nine. And I had a problem with that. And I isolated myself from them because I felt embarrassed by it. And one of my good, good friends, she said to me, you need to go and talk to somebody. And do you know what she noticed? She noticed that I was paying for everybody to do everything. So when we go to lunch, I'd pay for everything. If we go to the bar and have a drink, I'd pay for everything. And people were starting to get embarrassed by that. And that was only my way of trying to, you know, share what I was going through. But it was actually driving them further apart. And one of my good, good friends, she said, you need to go and talk to somebody. And I did. I went I found this guy and I went spoke to him for a number of months and he described it as success trauma. And once he started talking to me about it, it just opened up all of these other chats. But it was really great that somebody, one of my friends, said, why don't you go and talk to somebody because we've noticed this. You're making us feel uncomfortable because you keep doing this and I was doing this to try and make them feel comfortable with this cycle. And, you know, and I don't want to diminish the fact I was having a great time and, you know, living a dream and stuff. but. You know, it was also an isolating part of my life and talking to somebody was fantastic. It was exactly what I needed. And thank you for sharing that. It's so important for people to know that regardless of what's happening in their lives, it is important to reach out and to talk to someone to get that Well, help. it is. It is. And we used to call this man the fixer. So my girlfriend who put me onto this, this guy, she said, you need to see the fixer. And she'd just give me little nudges. And so I would go. And I went regularly for a number of months. But he told me that it's a very real thing and it happens a lot and it happens within families and it splits families up and it happens to people like CEOs or somebody at work who gets a all of a sudden gets a promotion in front of their colleagues. It can be really isolating and alienating. So you never know who's going through what and you never know who's looking like one way, one something on the outside, that there's this other undercurrent that is actually working against them. And seeing a third party who's completely impartial I think is a really great way of just come to grips with what's going on. Oh, and yeah. And I love it. I tell people, I even told my mum, I said, mum, she comes from a generation who would never think of seeing a psychologist. And I was like, mum, go and talk. It's the best. It's the best, you know. And it, it, it's just having that not being judged, that person who doesn't, 
you've got no ego in play. And I just found myself spewing out just all this stuff. It was the most cathartic time of my life in the end. But, it, you know, it came from a really um, bizarre beginning that how can I not be feeling great when I'm having this success? <laughs> and as you say too, everyone is going through something. We never know the stories or loads that people are carrying. Now, we're almost out of time. I do want to speak to you for hours and hours and hours, Todd, but I know I can't. But I I can't let you go without talking about you as a dad. Oh, yes. Tell me what what fatherhood (laughs) means for you because I know you're a dad, but there might be a number of people, uh, listeners, who aren't familiar with you as a father. Well, look, I'll start this part of the conversation, but just by saying Anne and I decided a long time, well, before Charlotte was born, that we would keep her out of the media and we wanted it to be her choice if and ever she wants to have a public persona, um, which I think has always has been the right decision. So a lot of people have taken that as me being some sort of distant father or, you know, because I don't have my daughter on Instagram with me or any of that. But And even now talking to you, I think it's... If I'm going to talk about Charlotte, I, I would like her to have the right to talk for herself. And um, that's been a conscious decision. And I think it's the right decision. But yes, it's just it's just everything I you know, never never knew it would be. One of the things that I really realized, which I didn't know about when you have a kid, is how you have the ability to shape a life in their early years, particularly. And that comes as a real shock or came as a real shock to me like, oh, I actually have to be careful what I say about this when she asks me what's heaven one day with her friends on my bed. What's heaven, Daddy? I was like, oh, great. Now I've got to come up with something. (laughs) (laughs) But I like, you know, and just those decisions like you have the ability to shape this person's life, you know, from a very early age and that was a real eye-opener for me. And Anne has done an incredible job bringing Charlotte up and, and Charlotte is an amazing kid and very balanced and very open and, uh, and I'm so proud of her and I'm so proud of the work Anne has done as well. So it's, um, yes, I love it. We haven't pushed her into any, you know, um, uh, one way or the other as showbiz goes. I mean, she does a little bits and pieces of it, but she does the school plays and sings with the school band and all of that, but we're just letting her find her own feet and, I couldn't be more proud of her. Oh, that's so beautiful. Can we dance together one day? Like I really want to do like a feathery yeah. outfit yes. with you and yes. like you'd be the leading man and look amazing and do all the yeah, hard yeah. work. Yeah, you find the function and the frock. Yes. I've got the tux ready to go. Yes. And you know all you have to do, Jess, when you're in my art, you just need to relax and I'll steer you around the floor. <laughs> Oh, seriously, and you'll be surprised how easy it is because oh, I can do it. No more ironing board moves. I love you no. so much, Todd. Thank you <laughs> I love so you much. Too. And and everybody needs to come and see Hairspray. We oh, in a few we weeks. will. I cannot wait. I love you so yeah. much. I love you too, darling. See ya. Bye. How much do I want to wear a sparkly dress and dance the foxtrot with Todd? That is going to be happening, dear listeners. You just keep an eye out for that. But while you're waiting, why not catch Todd performing in the musical Hairspray? It is on in Melbourne at the moment and it's going to be making its way to Sydney and Adelaide. You are not going to want to miss this fabulous show. For ticketing info, head to hairspraymusical.com.au or use the link that is in our show notes. 
And for more big conversations like this, follow the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast. And while you're there, I would love you to leave a big five-star gold sparkly review or share it with a friend. And if you enjoyed this episode with Todd, you might like my chat with guest Natalie Bassingthwaite. There was a time where I was ashamed, I was embarrassed, I was embarrassed about talking about it. I didn't want anyone to think that I was crazy, even though I kind of am, which just kind of makes me who I am. You know, like there was all this fear. And now I don't have that anymore because I feel it's so important for us to start getting real. You know, I'm sick of this, everything's perfect and I'm amazing and look how fabulous I am. It's like, that's great, but what else is going on? As well, I love all of your comments on my Insta. Please keep them coming because I'd love to hear from you about the sort of guests that you'd like to hear from on the Jessro Big Talk Show. The Jessro Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jessro. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.